Stork Talks. Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom. The storks have been part of life in The Hague for centuries. Have you spotted one yet? Each week, for the past 15 weeks, Stork Talks has delved into a range of stories, news and anecdotes. And this week, we want to take you under our wings as we rediscover the city of peace and justice through our special end-of-year edition. This is truly a special place to live and we invite you to listen now to our final podcast of 2020 as we rediscover some of our favorite moments from our time on air. Yeah, and our inspiration for starting this program came from the beautiful city of The Hague. Our curiosity about the incredible richness and variety of life here in The Hague in the city of peace and justice resulted in a program that aims to dig a little deeper into the hows and whys of the many people and initiatives that are happening here. And I must say, Zoe, this has resulted in some surprising discoveries, including the fact that our Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, prefers veggies over fish. Who knew, Tom? But yes, we began our quest to devise a program that would capture the diversity of The Hague through discussion. Now, sadly, Corona struck just as we were getting started, and we were forced to adapt or die, as they say. And so the idea of live Facebook discussions and podcasts recorded from home was born. And we look back on a year that has been one of the strangest in recent history on a global level. But not all aspects of it have been doom and gloom. This year was exceptional in some positive ways too. As COVID struck Europe, countries and people came together, and in doing so took one step further towards a stronger European Union. And Stork Talks explored the hopes and visions that lie behind this more integrated Europe in a fascinating discussion with two of Europe's youngest pan-European politicians, Ernst Boutkan and Bibi Willinga, who represent the full party in the Netherlands. Uh, for us, it's just, it became so normal to be in Europe as, as a generation. Uh, I will, and I will give another example. I don't know any other currency uh, that, which I used in my life than the euro. Because when the gulden was still here in the Netherlands, I was six years old when it disappeared. Wow. I'm almost 25 now. Wow. I don't even know what they look like, you know? For <laughs> me, ah. it's just euro. <laughs> so, so, you showed you gilders? Ah, come, come on, Ernst. Your parents must have I, showed I, I you looked, like the collectibles. I looked, I, looked it up on, on, I looked it up on Google, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> looks Whoa. it up on Google. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> so, so, so okay. to give you an image of what I mean with Generation yeah. Europe, I think there's a lot of stuff we, we do as, as, as young Europeans that, that we take for granted, but also we see as normal. So, for example, uh, when I have a discussion with, with older people, they sometimes talk about should there be a European Union or not. Mm. But when I talk with my friends, they talk about how much Europe should there be. So the European Union for them is is is, is the norm. Yes. Yeah, it's a fact of life. Mm. It has always been there. Mm. Uh, it's just a discussion how much of it should be there. And that's a little nuance. Well, and, and I think what's interesting is we're also here discussing not just where we are now with Generation Europe, but also where you'd like to take Generation Europe. Uh, and one of the, the goals from Volt is to increase democratic involvement in Europe as a whole. Uh, and, and this has been a, a criticism of the European Union since its inception. Um, and, and how does this relate to the, the European passport and, and citizenship to well further this process? Yes. Yeah, so, so again, I think that, that that a European passport or citizenship it's it's a symbol that that uh, shows to people that they are a European citizen uh, and that they're part of Europe and that they can you know that that, that they're a member of the European Union and that there are certain benefits coming with that. But if you really would 
uh, get a more democratic Europe, you should look at, at, at multiple uh, things that need to change within Europe. For example, we need to really follow European news about what happens in the European Parliament when they make laws that affect us. I must say, Tom, I really enjoyed uh, that discussion. It was just, uh, for me, it was very inspiring to hear how young Europeans are so much on board for for Europe. Yeah, you, you said it perfectly. For me, I love the fact how they were so optimistic about politics and that they can, didn't consider it just to be an old man's game, but that they said, we, as a youth, we need to start playing this politics game as Get well. Get involved. Absolutely. Now, this year has also witnessed the continuing development of the Brexit saga, and Stork Talks has, of course, taken special interest in the story because of the thousands of Brexpats who live in The Hague and surrounds. We heard initially from Tricia Tarrant of the British and the Netherlands group, who reminds all British nationals living here in The Hague to confirm their residence in the Netherlands before the 31st of December deadline. So please do that if you've not yet done it. We also looked at Brexit from a business angle. What will it mean for companies and organizations in The Hague? Now, The Hague is a hub for NGOs and impact startups. And so we spoke with the Director of Foreign Investments at The Hague Business Agency, Lawrence Koch, about this side of the Brexit story. Uh, that, that, that sounds Definitely, great. definitely. Yeah. Okay, so perhaps... You've, you've mentioned some of the bigger the big organizations with which we're all familiar, but can you give us any specific examples of organizations which have decided to make the move to The Hague as a result um, of Brexit? We've seen uh, Halo Trust, the Environmental Inve Investigation Agency come over, and um, uh, there's also Mercy Corp and, and, and Redress NGOs that came uh, yes. already a year or two years ago. So. There's definitely an increase there. Yeah, we're expecting uh, a, a larger influx uh, when the data uh, becomes comes closer or even fast. Yeah. Right. Okay. If I understood correctly from our previous conversation, you were saying that many of these organisations are not necessarily leaving the UK, but they're offering often deciding just to open an additional office in in say the Netherlands and in in the Hague. Is that right? Yeah. For for NGOs or, or startups. Could be the uh, the situation, but when we look at the, the more commercial side of businesses, uh, maybe IT companies or energy companies, uh, yeah, the UK market remains a big market for them. So uh, they will definitely keep their position there and um, maybe have a second second operation uh, on continental Europe, hopefully uh, from The Hague. So that's interesting to hear what's going on in The Hague. And if we just zoom out a little bit and think about uh, Brexit on a broader level, because of course we are all watching negotiations. They seem to be continuing at snail's pace. In your opinion, as a, obviously as a, as a business person, what do you think would be the best case scenario uh, at this stage? In the long term, I hope that um, for trade relations, there can be a, an agreement where uh, both countries could benefit from one another. And speaking of NGOs and humanitarian initiatives, Zoe, I know you spoke earlier this year with an inspirational man who is currently spearheading an initiative here in The Hague to help rebuild the city of Beirut. Yes, Tom, that is Tay El Rajula. Now, his story is a fascinating one. But in some ways, it's also typical of the kind of inspirational people that I have begun to expect to find here in the city of The Hague. So originally from Beirut in Lebanon, Tay was separated from his mother at age five. He lived for two years in a refugee camp in Syria, but he has now calls The Hague home and has become a blockchain entrepreneur and also the author of a book about his experiences. 
But at the moment, he is eager to help the people of Beirut as the city attempts to recover from an enormous blast that many of you will remember took place earlier this year as a result of a chemical explosion in the port area of the city. The size of the blast, no one can describe it in emotions or in words because what has been destroyed is the spirit of the people that, that, that have been living there in a pandemic, in a financial meltdown, in a political turmoil, in wars with our neighbors, whether it's Syria or Israel, with constant discussions on what will happen to the 1.2 million refugees residing in Lebanon. So it all added up, and this was not what they call the, the drop that made the cup flood. No, this was a complete you know, faucet that was open and the water just spilled everywhere. Now, you mentioned that um, the, the part of the city that was destroyed was largely the Christian part. We spoke a little bit about aid coming in, of course, from the West, and particularly France has shown a great interest because it has yes. colonial links. And I also asked you and said, or oh, how would you like to see the city moving forward? Yeah. From an outside perspective, we're trying to understand what would a, a good outcome look like? Yeah. The good outcome, and I would say the best outcome for Beirut now, is to rebuild it and rebuild it in a way that it is sustainable, rebuild it in a way where we can see bicycle lanes, we can see tramways, we can see uh, solar panels, we can see some a touch of technology in bringing the city back to life. And we hope as well that as it is being rebuilt, the uh, religious and the ethnic and the differentiating factors in society they abolish mm. and mm. we just think of ourselves as residents of that city. This is a story that will stay with us and fortunately for you as a listener, if you are still interested in donating or contributing to this initiative, you can still do so. And with Christmas coming up, it might be important to recognize and realize that although there are some challenges that we must overcome here with Corona, there are other people who face perhaps bigger or other challenges as well. Yes, so please uh, look on our social media page or look for Tay's information. He's, go, he's uh, got an initiative going on GoFundMe, and we will post the details of that for those people who missed it the first time around. Yeah, so just as the people of Beirut have been hit by an incredible series of misfortunes, we've all experienced difficulties associated with uh, Corona. And particularly now, as we look towards Christmas and New Year celebrations, we normally get together with family and friends, celebrate and we are social together. Nowadays, we find ourselves faced with the prospect of a small and even possibly solitary Christmas and New Year. And this is tough, and the issue of loneliness has really been highlighted by this pandemic. And we as Stalk Talks had the pleasure of actually speaking to a psychologist and founder of the Anti-Loneliness Foundation, Vasia Sarantopoulou, about how to best deal with the psychological challenges posed by corona. Uncertainty, but also it's the not-so-obvious fear of dying that is around us, but nobody's talking about that. But still, it's like a tab that you have on your laptop and it's open. You're not working on that, but then it takes some memory. <laughs> you know what I love about the fact that we could do these sessions now? Um, we actually have Nina, who is uh, like well, listening in and viewing in as well. And she actually has a question for you as well. And she okay. said, is there, is there any advice on how to regulate these uh, between brackets negative thoughts about uncertainties? 
I would say accepting, accept that we, we have negative thoughts about this uncertainty, but be careful that these thoughts are not backfiring, are not about us. Like we should have known better. Look at other people, how well put together they are, what's wrong with me? So we need to, again, to watch about this contamination that we said before. We do have negative thoughts about this uncertainty. Okay, we don't know. It's scary. <sighs> Indeed, it is scary. We need to accept that this is scary and make room for that. Like imagine that these thoughts are a guest at your house. And you cannot actually kick your guest out of the house. You have to be polite. This is what we, we learn from our mom. But you don't have time for them because you're occupied with another more, let's say, interesting guest. But you will say, well, sit here and we don't need to interact. Just sit here. I know you're here. I know what you, what you came for. But we don't need to interact so much. Just stay there. And I will, I will see what I will do with you. I like that. It's especially yeah. from a hospitality background that for me, just uh, yeah. it's very cute. Of course. Just tell someone yeah, to sit nice, there and then we'll, we'll get nice. to you later, sir. That's the, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that discussion, um, Tom, because I felt Vasia had some excellent advice. And I particularly liked the way she suggested that we think about our situation in terms of a framework kind of a narrative framework and you can make that a positive or a negative narrative and if you frame it in more positive terms you're less likely to feel so bad about it yeah it sometimes is a simple realization that everything that we experience takes place in our heads even though it sometimes can feel like it's out of our control the way we perceive it all takes place in just very close to us on, the, on top of our body and our brains Absolutely. Now, Corona has also brought some physical challenges. There's less opportunity to get out and travel, exercise and generally be active. And this has resulted in what for many has been the addition of the so-called Corona kilos. Now, we spoke with health entrepreneur Boomer Anderson, who works in the area of personalized health care. We talked to him about cutting edge technologies being used to optimize individual performance and also what this means for the future of aging. Yeah, absolutely, Zoe. And when it comes to cutting edge technology, we had a fascinating discussion with Boomer about the personalization of health in Japan. Um, it even got to the point of measuring the composition of what we leave behind in our toilet bowls. What you've seen out of Japan is very, very interesting. Uh, the toilet is a very um, fascinating concept in itself. And I'll address the toilet first and I'll come into the, the sushi singularity. So uh, the toilet, there's a company, and the name escapes me at this moment, uh, which uh, he's actually, I wouldn't call him a, a friend, but an acquaintance of mine that is using the technology from the toilet and then passporting it on the urine strips. So you don't necessarily have to go out and buy the toilet wholeheartedly. Wow. You'll be able to get the urine strips instead and be able to get these biomarkers at your door. And so from that end, are they pushing the realms of um, of what is possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, does the toilet concept or is the toilet concept going to catch on in everybody's <laughs> house? Uh, 
it's yet to you know it's yet maybe to be in seen. japan I, I just i just imagine <laughs> you you going to someone else's house going to the restroom and then sort of like you you get a receipt when you leave and you sort of leave like confused the toilet with like a receipt in your hands so sort of like what, what, what what's going on here <laughs> and then and then of course we're in europe so we have a data privacy question right so <laughs> there's um there's that whole that whole gamut and i don't know about you i don't necessarily uh, i mean actually i would be a person that would take the toilet but like that that's totally <laughs> Um, but other people, yeah, yeah, exactly. I would take, I, I would just pick up the toilet in Tokyo, but I would be the person that would have this type of toilet. But most people, it would be very, it'd be almost an intervention for them because they don't necessarily like going to uh, a physician or some place to get their mm -hmm. blood drawn anyway. And so mm -hmm. they're going to have this daily there. That's a little bit of a hard adjustment and a very long adjustment. Mm -hmm. Now, Japan, again, what uh, I want to reemphasize what they, they've done very well, which is push innovations. And the toilet idea has been around for almost a decade. Um, and this sort of what what this company that I was referring to is doing is taking that toilet idea mm -hmm. and making it into a urine strip, which is a little bit less invasive. Um, there's still a perception problem with analyzing stool. Um, and so people don't necessarily like having stool uh, sitting around in the toilet, um, but also in the refrigerator because it doesn't necessarily smell so good. We have indeed some fascinating discussions with a whole range of talents and inspiring individuals during our time on air. Absolutely, Tom. So many stalks, so little time. Yeah, and, and for that exact reason, Zoe, we've decided to put together a little Vox Pop to still be able to give you as much insight as we can in a short span of time with some of our favorites. So from Nigerian businesswoman Eberi Akadiri to coffee expert and barista Zishan Malik and cycling enthusiast Michael Delagrange, there's something for everyone. It was at that point I decided that how, how can I help, you know, maybe it's better that I launch an initiative called Keep Dignity Alive uh, back home in Nigeria to even create awareness of the dangers of being lured to travel to Europe in the first place, uh, the dangers of human trafficking, and also to continue uh, training people to empower them to start maybe their own businesses or find a job to yeah. make it impossible for them to even want to follow these trick, you know, tricksters who bring them out here and subject them to this inhuman yes. treatment. I, I would say, first of all, if you know the story behind your coffee, chances are you'll be able to do something really nice with it. And uh, and then it's really just about how uh, trained and experienced the people in that chain that I just described, from farming to roasting uh, to brewing. And if you're the home brewer, then you. Do you have a, a favorite bean type of coffee or where it's grown? If I had to put you on the spot and say what type, what cup of coffee, if you, your, your last cup of coffee, what would that be? You know, I get slaughtered for this in my industry a lot because I end up always saying the thing that a lot of people would regard quote-unquote basic, but I am a sucker for a good Brazilian coffee. At this point, I think a lot of people, a lot of my peers would uh, would kind of gasp and shudder, but some of the Brazilian coffees, uh, especially specialty-grade coffees that I've had that have been roasted by real masters have been uh, some of the greatest highlights of my coffee life, for sure. So if there's one region that I had to highlight as a soft spot, it would be that. The race will be held... Uh, the 23rd to the 26th of June, 2021. Okay. Okay. And so we're hoping to get some of the most uh, high-profile international racers uh, in the world who are in this scene, and 
and then bring them and race them against the best of East Africa. Instead of these guys having to always come to Europe to race and to have that, like, like I told you, that high pressure environment. Mm. Now we're trying to turn the tables a little bit uh, and make it uh, make these guys come and race on, on their home. I think it's a great idea because Africa has just got so much space and it's, yeah, it's a place that has beautiful scenery, so much sunshine. It seems like in some ways it's a no-brainer to have a cycle race there. Of course, there are other challenges um, associated with it, but it, it sounds amazing. And the last thing I'll say about it is that um, it's it's an opportunity for us also to show the value of unspoiled land. And I think uh, conservation is a, is a thing that Absolutely. we outdoor uh, enthusiasts all have in our minds. And, uh, and, and it's, I think, long past time that cycling and, and cyclists get involved in this narrative. Naturally, if this sample leaves you wanting more, then we've got you covered. And, and to do so, we've created a list which includes both the links to the full episodes as well as the timestamps to all of the interviews we've discussed during this podcast. Speaking of initiative and innovation, I remember your interview with the proprietor of Ithaca, uh, Tom, Robin Collard, and there were some really fascinating ideas there discussed uh, with regards to the future of food. How to live a proper life in this world is uh, still a actual subject, and we try to reproduce that in our restaurant. So, so what are elements that make a proper life, according to Spinoza, then? It is all about your interaction with your surrounding and how to live a sustainable life and have sustainable relationships without a very large footprint on your surroundings. For example, 80% of what we serve is based on vegetables uh, instead of coming from uh, animals. And the animals that we use are always in overpopulation in Holland. And talking about sustainability and the future, I recall a really interesting interview you did as well involving the Open Grachten project, a potentially face-changing project for The Hague that involves the reopening of some of the city's long-closed canals. Yes, this was definitely one of my favorites, Tom, uh, because I had the pleasure of seeing some computer-generated images of what the center of The Hague might look like with more canals. And I can honestly say it was a revelation. Tell us first what gave you this inspiration to bring back the canals to The Hague? Well, um, I'm living here for a long time now, more than 20 years, and uh, this old centre of The Hague uh, has many problems, like prostitution, like uh, we have two major addict centres, and um, that's something we are fighting against for a long time. So we, we are just a struggling neighborhood and we feel that city council is not representing us right. And therefore we made our own vision for the neighborhood, how we want to see the neighborhood in 10 years, 20 years. And people come to relax here and come to sit at the canals. And this is how we got the idea of canals, because in our vision canals, uh, opening the canals is very prominent. Can you just map out for us quite briefly the areas where we might expect to see these reintroduced canals? Well, actually, there are many closed canals. The, the, whole, the whole center of the city are full of them. And you can see it a little bit in the names, like, for instance, Pataljonsgracht, of course, there was a canal, but also names with Kade on the end, or with Burgwal, and even names that don't give you the hint there were canals, like Turfmarkt. 
Through our interviews, we've not only become better acquainted with The Hague and its inhabitants, some would say we've even become friends. And during our final live broadcast, we spoke with Casper de Weert of Vrienden van der Haag, who is one of the unsung heroes fighting to keep the DNA of the city intact. I think that there are many people in the international community who would be very interested to hear about, say, battles for uh, different, the restoration or, or the keeping of old buildings or his, buildings mm-hmm. of historic value. Um, I think many of them simply are unaware of, of the battles that, that you're fighting. I must admit that your invitation to come up in, in this program set me to thinking, well, actually, what about the international community? We, we, we never really thought about it other than what I just told you. But of yeah. course, these are also inhabitants of our city and have arrived on a good quality of the city. What a perfect clip to close on, Tom. Not just to know that there are unsung heroes in The Hague fighting for its preservation, but also to know that in addition to informing and engaging the international community of the City of Peace and Justice, we sometimes get the chance to inspire the Dutch community too. Stork Talks. I'm Tom. And I'm Zoe. And thank you for stalking with us down memory lane this evening. Next year on Stork Talks, we will continue to bring you more interesting, inspiring and informative stories from the city of peace and justice. Indeed, we look forward to digging deeper into some of the stories we've already covered and also to looking towards the future and what it holds for the citizens of The Hague. So if you would like to get in touch with us to share your news and views, please do. You can find us on our Facebook page, on Instagram, and even email uh, stalktalksdhfm at gmail.com. Well said, Zoe. And all that remains for us is to thank you for tuning in, our loyal listener to this podcast and the previous Facebook Live broadcasts. We, of course, hope to welcome you back soon and wish you and all of your families a safe, healthy and relaxing end of the year.